With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Red Shirts and Runabout, which is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. Uh, so your weekly show, we talk about all things Star Trek. We've been focusing a lot on Discovery. Uh, we did a few episodes uh, some weeks ago on some of the movies. But now that Discovery's back, that's what we're focusing on. I am one of your hosts, Greg Bosco. And with me, as always, are two very fine co-captains. Guys, people probably know you, but please introduce yourselves. Hi, everybody. I'm I'm Derek, also the, the Star Trek dude. I, I host a couple other shows on the network, Screen Heroes and Gamer Heroes. And I am Jeremy. I also host uh, the cartoon one on the network about the cartoons. About the cartoons. <laughs> when are we going to do the Star Trek the Animated Series episode? we got to figure that out. We do. I really want to do that. Um, there's actually the fi- whatever the finale is, I can't remember now. That's the only episode of Star Trek I have not watched. Hmm. Hmm. Well, we'll have to watch it and blow your mind. It, it, it's enjoyable. <laughs> Yeah, you know it's it's not going to win any awards, but it's it's fun for what it is. <laughs> if it was going to win one, it probably would have by now. <laughs> yeah. How probably. weird would that be if at like the 2018 Emmys, all of a sudden Star Trek, <laughs> yeah. the Star Trek: series. The Animated Series is just nothing but pink tribbles everywhere. There you go. <laughs> well, this week we're going to talk about uh, the episode name for the Discovery: Vaulting Ambition, and I keep messing that title up. Wrong. So, Derek, Jeremy, I apologize in advance, but I was just joking about that. But I keep, I can't for some reason. But the episode fits the or the title fits the episode perfectly. This this episode, vaunting ambivalence. Yeah, vaunting ambivalence. <laughs> now I got a third one in my brain. Oh no! Which uh, oh, no. great episode? But I don't know if you guys noticed, it was the shortest Discovery episode by a decent amount. Huh. Like, I did not. It felt really short. It was like eight, it was only thirty-seven minutes long, I think, and that's with the intro and the credits. So we're talking. That's, that's the cool thing about digital delivery and stuff like that is that they 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 can do that and just cut you off. Yeah, I know a lot of people are talking about how Game of Thrones, the final season. I guess some of the episodes won't be the full, you know, fifty some minutes. Um, but I, I really felt like this one was really short after that last because I, I still have the commercials on CBS All Access. Um, I didn't pay the few extra bucks. And after that last commercial break, I was ready for more episode. Yeah. And it's like, next week on Discovery. So. I mean, you didn't see that that was the denouement? That was a pretty intense cutoff in this episode. Yeah, I mean, you're right. I just, in, my, in the moment, I'm in it, you know, I'm like, all right, it's coming back from commercial, and then it's over. Yeah. Makes me, I need to look at the other, they haven't announced the episode lengths for the remaining episodes, have they? I don't think so. Because it makes me wonder if the final, if the season finale is going to be one of those, not quite a two-parter, but maybe like a 90-minute episode or an 80-minute episode, something like that. Well, before we get too far away from it, uh, speaking of Emmys, congratulations to friend of the show, Doug Jones, for uh, The Shape of Water. Oh, that's right. Like, yeah. I think they got like 13 noms or something. 13 Oscar nominations for The Shape yeah. of Water. Unfortunately, Doug Jones himself was not nominated, which I think is very unfortunate. He'll but... be on stage. But, uh, yeah, from what I can tell, it, it received the, the most nominations by quite a bit. I guess I'll have anyway, to check that movie out eventually. It's pretty good. Um, so, everybody's take on this episode? I'm, I'm pretty, like, all very gung-ho about Vaulting Ambition. Such a good episode. It was so exciting. It just kept moving. Um, all the various plots, because, I mean, there's basically, what, three or four different plot threads that go through this, were all just very attention-grabbing every time they, they were front and center. Um, yeah, it was it was really cool. And the, and the fact that, and we'll, we'll get to, you know, the, this, but the fact that a 
pretty big fan theory actually ended up being true really surprised me. The worst kept secret in all of Discovery ended up being literally the worst kept secret. Yeah, but that's kind of been the the running thread in Discovery so far is that it's not they're not really secrets. It's not like Lost where they're trying to keep a lid on this stuff. They kind of drop the clues and then just here it is. So it's like you can kind of get ahead of it, and that's not really a bad thing in this case, because it kind of makes things a little bit more exciting around those various factors. Well, and it's something we commented on a couple episodes ago, how this show's B-plots actually tend to typically tie in with the A-plot, which a lot of yeah. shows, the B-plot After about is, episode five. And yeah. One through four, they did not. And no, they did not. With that. Yeah. It's like a lot of TV shows today, it's, you know, Greg's in a prison, and you know, Jeremy and Derek go get a hamburger, but the hamburger leads to nothing. And Discovery, they would somehow tie it in where, oh, well, they, they got the hamburger at a shop, but that shop is uh, an expert hacker that can get into the jail to save Greg. It's like, that would be a Discovery plot. And I'm like, that's kind of like that. There's no, uh, I was, you guys heard me whining episodes ago about I hate wasted time. Like Game of Thrones is horrible with that. You know, the five minute intro, the five minute extras at the credits, you know, 10 minutes of Tyrion drinking wine, and then you get 25 minutes of substance. Yeah, from <clears throat> from a narrative perspective, those are like the extremes of that, because you have Game of Thrones, where you have uh, a sea story in an episode that might not actually pay off for like a full two seasons of television, which is like three years away. It's like, oh, that's what happened to that character. And like the, the exact opposite of that would be Archer where every scene ends with a shared line from the end of one scene to the beginning of another scene, where everything is directly overlapping, even though they're, they're different narrative threads, but they're all parallel. So it's like Discovery has a nice, a nice middle ground where things of a similar nature are happening that are informing the various layers, but the actual threads aren't bumping into each other. So it doesn't, it doesn't feel crowded, but it also doesn't feel um, like condescending, I guess is the word. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, and I mean, I'm not sure how much more we can talk about before getting into the spoilers. So I don't yeah. know if you guys just want to go to black alert, code code black. <laughs> um, yes, I guess that's your spoiler warning. <laughs> um, well, no, I'm going to go really... ahead and open up that the oh, sorry, Derek, but this episode continues the the my history of I like Burnham, the character and the actress. Who, by the way, we're going to talk about this at the end, but she's coming to Planet Comic Con. That's huge news. Yes. But she is like the character I care about least right now. And it's not because I don't like her. It's because I'm really interested with what's going on with the other characters right now. Especially how what they're doing with Stamets and what's going on with Lorca. And Tilly's kind of increasing confidence. You know, I've, it, it's weird for me to say that the main character is the one I care about the least. But I just, I can't explain. Well, yeah, I mean, it's... Go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, I, mean, I feel like it's because she is the the driving focal point, and it's, the stuff is happening around her, right? So, you know, you have the Mirror Universe Emperor Georgiou, and you want to know how is she going to act similarly or different to her Prime Universe counterpart. You know, now that we know about Lorca, you know, how did he switch over, and why did he come back? And, uh, you know, of course, for Stamets, is he going to wake up and get out of the coma, Right. So Burnham is really just propelling everything forward, but nothing's really happening to her. There's also the the fact that she has the Vulcan training and she's very much emotion neutral. So she does kind of have this robotic aspect to her where um, she doesn't have a lot of emotional inroads for the audience. She's just kind of dealing with things and dealing with them perfectly as they come. So it's kind of... Uh, from like a viewer empathy standpoint, you have Tilly, which is the extreme where we know everything that she's thinking and she always just says it the second she thinks it. We have Burnham where we can kind of get debriefings eventually, but you don't really get inside her head all the moment, like in the moment. And then you have Lorca who you have no idea who, what he's thinking and you can't trust a word he says. So it's like, depending on what scene and those are pretty much like the a b and c story of this episode so we have like tilly and stamens we know exactly what they're thinking all the time and they will not shut up about what they're thinking and you know and then there's like saru who has like a physical embodiment of what he's thinking 
but then we have, you know, Ash and Lorca who are, are very mysterious characters. So it's like, it's very emotionally jarring from scene to scene. It's like, do I know what's happening? I don't know what's happening. It's hard to really care about these characters because I don't know if they're going to, they're going to hurt me. It's an interesting point. I mean, Burnham almost acts like, acts as the neutral, right? She's yeah. your, she's your North. You know, you calibrate by her and everybody's kind of an ex- somewhere around that. Yeah. Um, they should make one of those D&D alignment charts. <laughs> yes. <We probably> <laughs> Burnham, Burnham true neutral. Burnham, Burnham is, is the truest of true neutral. I, I don't know. I, I feel like she's lawful neutral, though. Yeah, maybe lawful neutral. Well, except she broke. She's well, <laughs> she went, to, went to Starfleet jail. She did go to Starfleet jail, but, I mean, breaking a rule does not necessarily make you unlawful. So what does it make Lorca, like, chaotic neutral? I don't want to... Kind of evil. He's, like, a little evil. But we don't know yet, right? Yeah, we don't we know. Don't know. We, we know that he's been lying, and we know he's from the Mirror Universe, but we don't actually know his motives. But but also, if if we consider the Terran Empire of the Mirror Universe to be evil, and he was a rebel against the Terran Alliance, is it, it's kind of like an enemy of my enemy is my friend situation, where it's like... If you're if you're considered evil in the mirror universe, are then you good in normal universe? But was he against the Terran Empire, or was he just against Giorgio because he wanted to lead? Oh, that's true. Right. So, so I, he, he could potentially about. be more evil. <laughs> right, right. Right. Exactly. Okay. Because for all we know, he just wanted her spot. That's true. Okay. Before we get lost in D and D alignments of Star Trek, we could do like <laughs> we could do a ten episode podcast on that alone. That's how we get found. Sir. <laughs> we, <that's right. laughs> uh, Star Trek Next Generation would probably be pretty easy for D and D alignment compared to DS Nine or this, because everyone um, is lawful good. Everyone's except for Worf, who's maybe a little bit more chaotic good. Yeah, yeah, um, that's fair. But I mean, good episode, and again, it kind of picks up. I mean, it basically, on the timeline of things, it basically picks up mere minutes from last week's episode. Did you say mirror minutes? Yeah, mirror uh, minutes. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we, we get to see, of course, we're at the palace and Burnham meets uh, Emperor Giorgio and she has to pick which Kelpian she uh, ends up eating later, which is that disturbing. Was- it, it took me a minute once, like, it was it was shocking to see that they were eating Kelpian, but then to go, oh god, that's the one that she picked out. That was like a crab in a tank, or lobster in a tank. That was fucked up. Yeah, I mean, that, that was kind of, that gave me pause, I guess is the best way to put yeah. that. Um, and she specifically ate his ganglion. It's like, that's his fear response, you're devouring, you monster. And that's a delicacy, I guess. Um, but I mean, they're—he said that they're genetically raised to be prey, and clearly they're they're fast runners, so they have like nice lean muscle. They're probably delicious. Too far. <laughs> <laughs> I have no response to that. It was a dark scene though, because I mean, she's picking a kelpie, and she doesn't really know why. I made the assumption that it was going to be her servant while she was there at the palace, right? Yeah. Um, which I guess maybe that's what we were supposed to assume. So that way the, the meal later would be more shocking. Um, but uh, it's a it's a pretty good scene to see Giorgio. Michelle Yao really falls into that role quite well. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I mean, the, they, and they both fall into that um, kind of mother-daughter relationship right again, and you don't feel that tension until they get into the, the private quarters um, council, like, later on. It's it's nice to, to see that, that kind of moment of relief for Michael, because we know she's had such, like, a rough time and, and all the stress, and especially with that planet mission and the, the strafing run and all that, to, to see a nice moment of, maybe things are okay. Um, yeah, it was, it was a, it was just nice seeing Michael kind of have one moment of relief, even if it was kind of fake, uh, before, before Empress Giorgio. Was her, her, uh, Empress Augustus Eatonius? Like, she had these, all these titles. Yeah, right? She was like, you know, the, the ruler of Vulcan and Andor and the Klingon Empire and, or Kronos, and, like, they were listing all of these, these planets, some of them were founding members of the Federation. Uh, it was kind of, it was really well done. Like the detail that they put into that, I, I really appreciated. 
yeah, it really shows kind of the, the shocking effect having access to the Defiant had on these powers. Because, I mean, it is that is not what it was like in uh, Through a Mirror Darkly on Enterprise. No, not at all. Um, it's really like this gave the Terran Empire its huge jumpstart on the rest of the Quadrant, I guess. Which makes me wonder if the ship is still around. It's a good question. I mean, at at the very least, you'd think they would have saved it as a museum of sorts. I mean, from a technology standpoint, if the Defiant was 100 years, from 100 years in the future, 100 years ago in the Mirror Timeline, then they would just now be getting to the point where it was modern technology. Right. Yes. That's true. So it should still be a top of the the state-of-the-art vessel, even if it might be in disrepair from taking over the entire universe. That's also a good point. Um, you know, but I mean, you look at her palace though. I mean, it had cloaking technology, which I assume they stole from it was, the Klingons. Yeah. It was like a miniature Dyson sphere. Like it, it orbited right? a little sun. I, I want to know everything about that palace ship. It was amazing. I wonder how large it is. I mean, cause the, the shuttle scale made it seem like maybe it was smaller than it's supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, there, there's no way that would be like a full size sun, but it was clearly some type of. Um, it was like a like a maintained fusion reaction or something that was just happening in the middle of the ship. Now, was that was definitely it was some sort of energy source, but they never. We got a few good glimpses of it, but they never said exactly what it was, did they? No. No, it, it did look like it might be a small star of some kind. You know, maybe it, maybe it was artificially made. Yeah. Um, but something like that. But to um, go back a second, we we also see them giving Lorca the pain inhibitor, mm-hmm. which is pretty important. Yeah. Because we know he's going right from one agonizer chamber into another agonizer chamber, so um, Michael shoots him up with um, pain inhibitor so that he can kind of pretend to be in agony. And uh, it's pretty pretty important later on. Well, I imagine he had to still be in pain, uh, just maybe not as much pain as he would have been. Um, But, I mean, he clearly seems to be a person who, like the character Lorca, of course, obviously Jason Isaacs is an actor, but the character Lorca seems to be an actor in himself because, you know, he can change his personality as needed. He, uh, you know, when he smashes his head on the wall, you know, to cut his face, he, he can really buy into a particular role when he needs to. Yeah, I mean, also, he might be a psychopath, which is, they can inflict pain upon themselves to, to carry out a point and not, uh, and, and be able to not automatically stop themselves. Like, that's a, a symptom. It's a good point. I'm pretty confident that he has some sort of mental psychopathic tendencies at this point. Though everyone from the Mirror Universe might. Yeah, and I kept hoping that... Because Derek brought this up, I don't know which one of you guys brought this up a couple weeks ago, but everything in this current mirror universe is really to the extreme. You know, the the hyper-aggression, the hyper-torture, they eat people. Um, The eating of the Kelpians, even if they are on their home planet, you know, food, that's still pretty... I don't even know how to describe it. It is still, it's disturbing in a way you're like, oh my god. Well, it was, it was already kind of disturbing in previous episodes to see them portrayed as slaves, like nameless slaves that just bathe you. But like, even if I had a, you know, even if in a society that had slaves, they don't eat the slaves. So it's kind of like, they just keep cranking it up a notch. Yeah, I mean, they took it to the next level. I mean, obviously, Kelpians and humans are different species, but it's pretty close to cannibalism. It's an It's a sentient, intelligent being. Um, that had spacefaring technology, at least in, in our version of the universe. So that's pretty. Well, it's dark. kind of it's kind of also a juxtaposition of how we see the Klingons, because the Klingons were eating humans in the normal universe. So it's kind of portraying that same level of savagery and brutality on humans in the mirror universe. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, I think that's part of the point that Burnham is trying to make to mirror evoke. Uh, in the previous episode, where, you know, it seems that the Terran Empire and the Klingon Empire have changed places. Right. And boy, have they changed places, because this Terran Empire almost makes the Klingons look peaceful. <laughs> at, le- at least the Klingons yeah, say the, in the uh, Mirror Universe seem to kind of want a straight-up fight. Yeah. Man, 
It's a good thing the Klingons in the Prime Universe do not have that throwing star technology. <laughs> yeah, yes. I mean, that was cool to watch. Uh, not sure that it makes any, like, physical sense, but, you know, a cool, cool shot. Yeah, it's like, why are we wasting time with phasers when we have, like, brain-seeking laser-throwing stars? <laughs> but these past couple episodes really reinforce that I would love to have seen a Star Trek show with... Uh... Michelle Yao as the captain. I mean, you're watching one. Well, I mean, like... She's the captain of captains. Yeah, but I mean, like, 72 episodes of her as captain. I agree. Uh, maybe that'll be the the driving force of season two is, like, she comes back into the Prime Universe and tries to just take everything over. Well, that, we're going to have to talk about that at the end of this of this recording or maybe another episode of just how much of a chance can this show take by playing in the mirror universe because in the past we've talked about the other shows it was always kind of like a side thing a gimmick but this it's a huge driving portion of what the show is all about yeah Yeah. they they do have to be careful with it Um, I hope that they don't take it too far I think finishing the season there is fine but we need to go back I need to go into season 2 with them back in our universe um, because otherwise, yeah, otherwise it just gets kind of gimmicky and it's, it becomes more of like Battlestar Galactica and the Terran Empire or the Cylons and the Discovery just has to survive. Yeah. I want them to, yeah. to ensure they start getting back to episodes where they, you know, they're fighting giant hands in space or Nagilum or Q <laughs> start doing the, uh, start doing the traditional Star Trek episodes. Cause you could do, I mean, the mirror universe has been fun, but they can only play out so much. Right. I'm happy with it. They, I feel like they haven't quite taxed what, what we can get out of the Mirror Universe just yet. No, I agree with that. I just don't want, you know, the next 30 episodes or for seasons two and three are all in the Mirror Universe. But yes. I, I genuinely wouldn't mind it. Like, if, if it just becomes them helping the, the Mirror various races take over the Terran Empire... Like, that's just as cool, in my mind, as, as normal. See, when does the Prime Directive come into play when it's your own, when it's your own mirror you, humans? Wouldn't that be an exciting thing to pursue in an episode? Well, I would think that the... I mean, I, I think that's pretty cut and dry, that the Prime Directive, you're not... If you aren't supposed to interfere with a single planet ecosystem, you're not supposed to interfere with another universe. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> uh, but how do you guys feel specifically about the big Lorca twist? The fact that Lorca this whole time has been this mirror universe version where, you know, a lot of the fans, I think, were hoping that was the case. I don't, I hesitate that anybody quote knew or guessed right. I think it was wishful thinking because people didn't like that there was this dark, uh, captain who, you know, broke the rules whenever it was convenient. Yeah, I, I, so they laid down a lot of clues for it, but then I feel like they didn't hint at a lot of them. So namely the, his eye, uh, light sensitivity. I feel like they haven't mentioned that at all since like episode four or five. Um, and then for them all of a sudden to say that everyone in the mirror universe is sensitive to light feels like kind of a, a lame way to be like, Oh, didn't you get that little little nugget we dropped? Because they, they never did. They they should have said like our the lights on these ships are so low, no one understands why or something like that. Well, especially if they're that sensitive to light, why do they have a ship orbiting a little mini star? Right. Like, you think all the you think they would have some sort of technology to dampen that effect and stuff? Instead, every time Giorgio opens up the window, she's just blinded. Yeah. Yeah, it, it did feel a little bit like a forced retcon uh, where. You know, I don't remember that being a factor in the other Mirror Universe episodes. It wasn't. Right? Because, I mean, the Defiant from uh, uh, In the Mirror Darkly is, of course, a normally lit Constitution-class ship. Mirror Mirror on the Enterprise is a very bright ship. Uh, obviously, the DS9 episodes were a little bit darker, but that had more to do with the tone. Yeah, uh, that was just campy aesthetics. Right, exactly. So I felt like that was just a way for them to to change the lore a bit. I'm not saying that I have a problem with that necessarily, but it is, again, an example of them playing a little fast and loose with 
with retconning. Um, and Enterprise well, and- did its fair share, don't get me wrong. Star Trek has retconned itself many times. But Discovery really is is doing it quite a bit in its first few episodes. Yeah, and that's... I mean, we knew from the onset that they were going to be playing a little bit fast and loose with, with the canon. But for them to lean lean on that aspect of Lorca so hard for a few episodes to where it was like a, a plot point in the the ones with um you know Rain Wilson where it's like oh turning on the lights and, and messing with them and that's how we you know a tactical advantage over Lorca then they just don't talk about it for so long you never see him squint to the light or anything like that and then it just comes back as this like don't you remember this aspect of Lorca that we talked about, like at the beginning of the first half of the season? I don't know. It, it just felt very like, well, if this is what you were doing, then you should have done it better. Um, I don't know. That that part didn't bother me. It was more of the retconning of the whole mirror universe has yeah. that sensitivity. That that doesn't sit as well with me. Lorca as as the one character, I, I felt like they referenced it enough. If they had continued to reference it, then I would have. I probably would have been thinking that they were overdoing it. Yeah. I mean, they could have referenced it the same amount that they did and just spread it out a little bit better. It just felt so top-heavy. Well, That's and, fair. And speaking of still not understanding things, uh, Voke, Tyler, Tyler, Voke, hybrid, not a hybrid, clone, not a clone. Yeah. They messed, I kinda they messed with his brain, they, but they didn't, but they did. I don't know if they took his brain and put it in a Klingon. Or made a Klingon look like him and put his brain in it. It's kind of like a weird so, chicken or the egg thing. So here's how I understood it when Laurel's explaining it. They took Voke, and they had captured a man named a- uh, Ash Tyler. Right. They killed Ash Tyler, but before killing him, they made a copy of his psyche, of all okay. of his of all of his uh, memories, his brain scans, everything. They took all of his physical measurements, his biological measurements, his DNA. Everything that they were going to need, they basically harvested him. And then they took Voke and using very invasive, painful surgeries and very high-tech techniques that um, seem to go well beyond the technology in even, you know, the 24th or 25th centuries, um, yeah. were able to transform the Klingon Voke son of none into a Ash Tyler, basically... Um, you know, clone, not not exactly a clone, but more of like a pod person, right? He's a decoy. He's not actually Ash Tyler. Right, but he looks like Ash Tyler. And then what they did is they grafted Ash Tyler's psyche on top of Vokes. Well, it sounds like what they did was how they explained making AIs in um, the Halo universe, where, like, the only way you can make a true functional AI is to take a direct... um, imprint of a human brain but it's so invasive that it kills that person so it's like it's ash tyler's true intelligence in Voke's body but it's it's taking up the same brain as Voke's personality right and then through this process of laurel you know laser massaging his brain they kill the part of it that was still Voke. so now it's just the AI construct of Ash Tyler in the reformulated Klingon body of Voke. Like, is that what we're supposed to believe? So that was unclear to me. I wasn't sure which psyche survived that procedure. I assumed it was only going to be one, but I guess I assumed it was going to be Voke. I assume from her screaming in, in, like, emotional distress that she was killing Voke. Yeah, no, you're right. That, That would be what the Klingons would do to, you know... Yeah, no, you're you're totally right. You're absolutely right. Stovacor, you know, warrior is coming, right? Because then, because then we, as as viewers, there's still Ash Tyler, but then there's the drama of, are you really Ash Tyler, or are you a copy of Ash Tyler in a Klingon body? Can we trust you? Well, yeah, and that kind of sets him up as a very interesting character to watch moving forward. Because how do you treat that person? You know, did they commit these murders? Was it Tyler, the, the Tyler psyche that killed Dr. Kolber? Or was it right. the Voke psyche? Or is it both? Um, you yeah, know. how could Stamets ever look at him and not see the man that killed his husband or lover or whatever? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, it, it is a difficult thing. And I guess they're going to have to, at some point, 
uh, deal with the fact that it wasn't Stamets who killed Dr. Colbert, because right now Saru and Tilly think it was. True. Yeah, and and especially when Ash and Michael reunite with, with the connection that they've had, for Michael to know that that was the body of the Klingon that she fought and almost died at the hands of aboard the, uh, the torchbearer ship is, is a very, very interesting future dramatic plot point. Well, it's a good segue because you were just talking about Stamets to, they're really starting to, to throw down on the Stamets storyline with the Mycelium network, which yeah. I think we just saw how and why the Mycelium network is in another episodes or shows, but we'll talk about that in a minute. But Stamets kind of reawakening, for lack of a better term, in the last episode, now in this episode, in the forest. And he runs right. into Mirror Stamets, but Mirror Stamets actually seems almost kind of like regular non-Mirror Universe Stamets. Well, the way I kind of saw the Mirror Universe Stamets is that he needs the regular Universe Stamets, because he's been trapped here and needs all the help he can get. He understands that because he's a very intelligent person. But at the same time, he was abusing the network. So we know that he doesn't hold himself to the same ethical standards and research standards that Stamets does. Because Stamets was willing to put himself at risk, but he wasn't willing to put anybody else at risk. And he wasn't willing to hurt the network or, or hurt the tardigrade. He really wanted to find these these amazing discoveries, but do it as ethical as possible. Whereas the Mirror Universe Stamets, he doesn't care. He's going to destroy the network as long as it helps the Terran Empire. Well, at some point, he still would have had to inject himself with the tardigrade DNA, which in the normal universe was done as an effort to protect the tardigrade. So it's it's interesting that they would have come to the same place from whatever the, the evil version of that is. And they don't really go into to what that process was. All we know is really that mirror statements... Um, kind of tapped into the mycelial whatever network. Mycelial network, yeah. Yeah, mushroom space uh, of, like, a, a bit longer, because he was basically keeping tabs on Stamets Prime um, <laughs> since the beginning of the show. Yeah, I mean, you're right. Um, I guess I figure that the, the big key about the Mirror Universe and why it's not just some completely crazy multiverse is that it's very closely tied with ours. And a lot yeah. of the same events take place, but we get there in different paths. And I think that's really the key, is that characters need to end up in similar places, just not necessarily getting there through the same means. That's why you still have um, Georgiou in a prime location. You have Stamets in his location. You have the Discovery in both universes. Um, you know, These types of things are still very important concepts to both universes. It's just how you get there that changes. I wonder if they're going to try and play up the fact that maybe the two universes are connected by the, the mushroom network and that maybe that's, that's why they're so close in proximity is that the only thing like the, the veil that keeps them apart is just this, this spore network. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they might dive into that a little bit. Um, I'm curious did you guys ever? Did you guys ever read like the Star Trek novels? Nope. I mean, some Dang. now and then, but nothing. Probably not to. I don't. I'm not familiar with any of the stories that are similar to what we're talking about. So I'm trying to. I can't remember the name of it. So there was a trilogy of books that kind of explored the mirror universe, and it was just. It was determined. Of course, the books are are not not canon. They're they're beta canon at best. Um, but. Uh, they explain that these creatures um, called the, I think it's the Protectors, um, they create two two universes. And they let one to its own devices. And on the other universe, they lend a hand from time to time, pushing things in particular directions. And our universe is the latter, and the mirror universe is the former. And so I always thought that was very interesting because basically what that means is that left to our our own devices, we are not the best people. Which, if you look at human history, is not entirely unreasonable. You know, I hate, I'm not going to bring in modern day politics, but I'm just talking from a historical point of view. You know, we, 
fighting wars over rivers and food and people is not necessarily an un or excuse me an inhuman thing. Yeah, I mean the, what they say about I mean, the Roman that's... Empire it conquered the world in self defense. It's kind of like what the Terran right. em- it's kind of like what the Terran Empire is doing. Mm-hmm. They're conquering everybody else before they can be a threat to them. But I mean that's that's kind of neat though. But the vibe I actually get from this these past few episodes, you guys remember a TV show called Fringe? Oh, I yeah. love Fringe. Yeah, I mean the parallel universes. I mean this is kind of like the same thing almost, where you got the same characters. I know Star Trek did it before, obviously Mirror Mirror and all that. But this is the first time we've had consecutive storylines in both universes. And so I'm, I'm very interested to see where they go with this. Uh, you know, the whole Lorca thing, the Stamets stuff. I mean, even Giorgio, uh, excuse me, Burnham talking to Giorgio and just flat out telling her the truth when, when Giorgio's going to kill her. Yeah, that was interesting. To just straight up, like, okay, here's, here's all of it. By the way, that's not me that tried to, that was part of the coup. Uh, that was somebody else. I'm... From a different universe. It made sense, though, because at that point, there's uh, there's nothing left to lose. No, there's She's not. She's going to be dead in a matter of seconds, so you might as well try. Also, I love that there was a handy console with a one-button check to see if something has the harmonic frequencies of another universe, as if that like happens as often as like scanning your credit card. Hey, <laughs> hey, wait a second. You're the guy... You love Insurrection. Wasn't there a scene where they hit two buttons and they play like HMS Pinafore or something? Well, they do that a lot. We just yeah, don't yeah. see it on the episodes. Yeah, we just don't see it all the time. Yeah. Picard yeah. has pinafore consoles set up all over the Enterprise. It's, Actually, if any Captain Wood, it'd be him. He was rehearsing it with Data, okay? So it yeah. was one of his recently used files. Yeah. I'm sorry, Recently Derek, opened right. tabs. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah, he just has his Chrome synced between the uh, the Enterprise and the Captain's yacht. Well, no, it was the last thing on his Bluetooth on his phone, so when it synced up there with the shuttlecraft, oh, it just started playing it. Right, right, of course. Oh, I'm looking at my notes. We just talked about it, but I want to go back really quick to the uh, to the whole Tavoke Tyler thing. Saru handled himself like a captain the whole time. Yeah, Saru's really stepping up into that role. He wasn't yeah. scared. He wasn't acting cowardly. He wasn't intimidated. He actually, at one point, intimidated Lorel, And I, I mean... For a Kelpian to yeah. do that, it's pretty damn awesome to me. Yeah, he must be delicious. Oh. <laughs> I think that we've seen Saru grow quite a bit, um, more so than, than most other characters in the show so far. And he realizes that he is a capable person and can handle the job. And he's had to handle the job for quite some time with both Lorca and Burnham out of the game because they've they've been off on their own thing and Giorgio, of course, has been dead for a long time. Um, and he realizes that in desperation, it's his responsibility and he steps up to it. I wonder if the crystal pillar planet kind of taking over his mind and, and making him kick some ass, like just physically dominate some people. I wonder if that kind of unlocked his potential in his own mind where he wasn't feeling like so much of a coward. It's an interesting point. I had not considered that, but that's very possible. Because he was he was straight up timid, like like game in in the the first half of the first half of this season. But after that point, I feel like we started seeing him really like having confidence in in himself. Maybe that combined with being in the mirror universe. He's like, it's like that fight or flight defense. He's like, I have to fight to survive with the Discovery because everything on the Discovery is falling apart around him. Also, I think as as a first officer and like a good first officer is always giving that that second opinion to the captain when he doesn't have the captain to be the first opinion. He kind of has to has to stand up for his own point of view as opposed to second guessing the point of view of someone else. Mm-hmm. So maybe he's just more suited to the captain role than the first officer role. Let's talk about well, that he... for a second. That mirror universe sure. uh, Lorca, who was captain on the on the the real universe Discovery, made Saru his first officer. Yeah. Well, he's I... like in my universe, this guy's a lobster, but he's going to be my first officer. Well, because Lorca, you know, one thing that's really important is that Lorca, of course, is not stupid, and he knows that he needs somebody who is a intelligent scientific mind at the helm of this ship in an unfamiliar place. That's but true. also he he cherry picked the crew 
um, with knowledge from the mirror universe. So there's there's a possibility that he self-assembled this crew knowing who they were to Michael and who they were in the mirror universe so that they would be able to more easily come back to the mirror universe when when it was time for that. So he might know that Saru is the Kelpian that was a slave aboard the, the Shenzhou. So he was like, that's that's the, the Kelpian I want on my ship. Mm. Interesting. So then it's then it's less fate driving things and more him knowingly making things happen. If you think about it, this episode, like I said earlier, was the shortest, but there's a lot going on. With yeah. stamets in in the forest, meeting mirror stamets, he's meeting Culber, and the mirror stamets telling him, hey, there's, the system's falling apart, I don't know what's wrong with it, but if you stay here too long, it's yeah, it's it's like the bogs in Lord of the Rings, it's going to suck you in and you're not going to get back out, and... Yeah, your arm gets weird. Your arm gets weird, and, you know... It was nice that they gave them, gave them a chance to brush their teeth together again, that was sweet. Yeah, that was that was a really touching exchange of scenes there between the two of them, don't you think? Yeah. It's probably one of the more, more passionate male kisses I've seen on TV, too. I haven't thought about that. I yeah, guess it was I got to give credit. I, I actually care about this relationship because you know after 7 episodes of Troy and Riker, I'm like, "Are right, are you guys are a couple or are you not?" cuz <laughs> Riker, you've been stringing Troy along for like 20 years and this woman's still putting up with your nonsense. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more genuine affection than, like, you see between Cisco and the freighter captain or, like, uh, Dax and Worf. It's, like, it's it's much more real than, than most Enterprise or Star Trek-related romances. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think that the two of them just have great chemistry together. Um and the scene just came at a really important time. I mean, the more you think about it, these these two had to come together because if if Colbert doesn't die as much as it sucks that he does, um, if he doesn't die, Stamets is probably stuck in the network. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, also, if we moving forward as as this show goes into hopefully many many seasons. If we never saw this um, re- relationship and this kind of humanity uh, in Stamets's character, he probably wouldn't be—he wouldn't have more depth than like the the LMS hologram on Voyager, because he's just this science-focused, cold but a little bit quirky, um, you know, straightforward science man. But now we know he has this this humanity to him. He has this life, and now he's going to have this this deep, deep drama and, and loss that, that we're going to live with, with this character moving forward. It's, it's going to be so interesting to see how that progresses. Yeah. I, I think you make a really good point. I mean, cause early on in the show, Stamets comes off as kind of a jerk. Yeah. And he's really not, he's incredibly passionate and a little impatient, uh, but he means well, and he does care about people. Well, I mean, the big turning point for Stamets is when, Tilly says, this is fucking cool, and he just turns to her and says, this is fucking cool. And it's like, <laughs> oh, you're not just doing this because you're the best at it. You're doing this because you like it, and mm-hmm. you're having fun. Yeah. I think that's what's really important about his character. And what's important about, really, all of the engineers on the main Star Trek shows is that those engineers always were very passionate about yeah. what they did. You know, between Scotty and Jordy and, of course, the Chief uh, Chief O'Brien, Balana. And, uh, and Trip, I mean, they are all incredibly passionate about their ships and what they do for a living. Stamets is no different. It's so weird. I, you, you never think about it until they say it, but he's just a lieutenant. It's just like, he's, he seems like he's the top science guy, but isn't lieutenant a little bit further down the ranks? Or am I wrong about ranks? Well, no, I mean, because you, you go from lieutenant to lieutenant commander, and then commander, um, and then captain, uh, assuming that you don't become a first officer, too, of course, but first officers are commanders. Um, well, I guess Jordy was a lieutenant, wasn't he? Well, so that's where it gets kind of complicated, right? Because both Data, Jordy, and Worf were referred to as commanders while they were lieutenant commanders. Oh, okay. um, And I do know that, you know, Jordy and Worf start off as lieutenants, Um 
you know, but of course, Jordy's character changes quite a bit. He comes from the red-shirted uh, helmsman to being the the yellow shirt uh, chief engineer. So yeah. you know, he, he got moved around a little bit. Um, I would say probably. I mean, one of the the most scientific minds on the ship is is also Saru. Um, but Stamets is he's the expert on the spore drive. He's the expert on engineering and propulsion and things of that nature. But you're going to have you know other experts in different areas. Yeah. Yeah, and also like O'Brien on DS9 was actually an enlisted man. He's a chief because he even has right. an episode of Next Generation where he talks about how he enlisted. Um, the ranks. I mean, Jeremy, you're not wrong because the ranks in Star Trek they've always played fast and loose with. You know, Torres was a lieutenant, but she was Maquis, so what the hell? And Jacote was commander, but he was Maquis, so whatever. Um, the ranks have always been kind of goofy. I think it was the original series was unique when they were all command level rank. I think even Uhura was a full commander. Um, well, well, I mean, by the by the time we get around to the movies for the next gen, they're all commanders. Yeah, they're all commanders. Or yeah. there's like. Or, or captains. Or captains, yeah. Well, or, cap- or admirals, yeah. Right. Yes. Um, but yeah, I mean, in the episode, I kind of, I like how Burnham gave her old, the old Giorgio's old badge to her when she was trying to convince her. And I don't know if that convinced... I like that they never patted her down for, like, sharp objects and all of this. In front of the Emperor? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for me, it shows a sense of, of confidence and strength coming from the Emperor. She doesn't see... Burnham as I mean, a direct if, threat. If I had that sword, I would be the most confident person in any room. That sword could kill every dragon that has ever existed. <laughs> I mean, I would watch that. It was like a plus three Vorpal dire sword of awesomeness. A holy Avenger? Or a, yeah. a terrible Avenger because it's the mirror universe? Right. Uh, but I mean, it's, you know, the, so they got the, that whole Giorgio scene. Giorgio kills everybody with the spinning disc thing we talked about. Uh, I, I kind of I, I was I was enjoying what they were talking about between Burnham and Giorgio, how they had that past relationship, and Giorgio basically adopted her. You know, by the way, Lorca apparently groomed a young Burnham to become his lover. Um, and I've been seeing people online complain about that. I'm like, that's a total mirror universe thing. I mean, I that doesn't surprise actually yeah. doesn't surprise me one bit. I never got that sense though in the Prime universe that that's what relationship they had like she so Giorgio starts talking about about their Lorca and their Burnham and all that stuff and how there was just this Giorgio is is mommy and Lorca is daddy thing happening but then the the twist that Lorca it now has a romantic thing with her in like I don't know that that didn't strike true with me it seemed like he was trying to groom a protege but the the lover side of it seemed not real. Well, and they already kind of delved into a DS9 where Mira Kira uses her sexuality as like power. So for all yeah, we Mira know, Kira's a rapist. Yeah, for all we know, Burnham in Mirror Universe is doing the same thing to Lorca. She's Oh, like she was trying to yeah, get one over on him. Like she's using his interest and attraction to her to pull one over on him. That that's Maybe. that's established in the Mirror Universe that, that that's occurred. So I mean, it's possible. Hmm. Were either of you really disappointed when they read out all of uh, Giorgio's Empress names and Sato wasn't in there at all? No. I was, I was so hoping that would be just part of her Empress line. Because if, if we have Emperor Hoshi, or Empress Hoshi, uh, you would, it would be a dynastic lineage. See, but I don't, I don't think so, though. I don't think that's how the Terran Empire works. I think that Giorgio won her spot. That's probably true. You could hear the scorn yeah. in Derek's voice, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just, I'm sorry. I, I think it would have been a disservice to uh, uh, a, uh, Par- Linda Park and to Michelle Yao as being from very different countries and very different uh, nationalities in Asia. Uh, well, you don't them. know where the respective male genes are coming from. I, I know, but I just think it's it would have been way too. Convenient. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, to, to basically have the, you know, two of, like, the only, like, four Asian characters in Star Trek, and of course half of them are related, you know, it just, yeah. that, that would have not sat well with me. Um, That's I, true. I like the idea that Giorgio is the emperor because she killed off 
whoever the descendant of Hoshi Sato was at the time. Because the Sato Empire, you know, in canon lasted about 100 years. So Giorgio must have killed, you know, Hoshi's granddaughter, I guess, might have been, you know, or great-granddaughter, depending on, you know, of course, how long they live on in the Terran Empire. But I'm with Jeremy. I, mean, I was worried it was something they were going to do. I didn't want them to do it, but I was worried Hollywood would... It's like the new Solo movie for Star Wars that's coming out. I'm sorry. I'm predicting it now. There's going to be a scene where somehow 16-year-old Han Solo bumps into like a 12-year-old Princess Leia. You know, <laughs> you know it's going to happen. No, and people are going to be like, oh my. People are going to clap and people are going to cheer and I'm going to cry. Um, well, that's only uh, if it's uh, if she's played by uh, Eleven from Stranger Things. <laughs> there we go. I feel like we would have heard about that casting by now. Really, <laughs> Bobby Brown's a little big for that. Maybe, maybe. I just hope it's a buddy movie between, uh, you know, young Lando and young Han. Well, getting up to some antics. Maybe maybe we'll talk about it when, uh, when the movie comes out. Uh, but, yeah, sorry. Uh, I kind of sidetracked this there, but... That's <laughs> no, what you're I, good, you're good. That's what I was worried about them doing with Discovery, is throwing some sort of ham in there about the descendant from Emperor Hoshi, uh, Philippa, Empress, or Emperor Philippa, Giorgio, Conqueror of Kronos, and... King in the North or something. I'm like, oh, here we go. <laughs> King in the North. <laughs> I mean, I like uh, the throne room. I like, got the Imperial vibe from the throne room. You know, I'm yeah. the Emperor. I want my attendees to see how great I am. I like that. That was a cool scene. I like the costumes. Michelle Yao can act the hell out of anything, and I love it. I just love the 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 unifying thread in all things Mirror Universe is like, let's just crank this shit up to 12. Let's make everything <laughs> as tacky and ridiculous and gaudy as possible. And let's not have anyone acknowledge it whatsoever if they're from the Mirror Universe. But it's like, that's the first thing everybody from the Prime Universe is like, well, this is all ridiculous. It's like, we know. Well, here's, here's a question <laughs> for you guys. So, Giorgio actually already knows about the United Federation of Planets, which is not surprising. She knows about the USS Defiant, I'm sure. Um, yeah. but she also seemed interested in the spore drive, knowing that the spore drive got the discovery to the mirror universe. Well, clearly they were working on the spore drive on the palace ship because that's where mirror stamens wakes up. Yeah. So does that mean she runs to cross over to the prime universe? Well, I, I think why. so because, well, she, it seems that she only fears one thing and that's the ideology of the Federation. And so, True. if she can create a armada of Terran Empire warships that can spore jump into the Prime Universe and just wipe out the Federation, she could be the Emperor of two galaxies. And the only sad thing, or sad thing, um, thing that kind of annoys me about what's going on right now is it kind of takes away a little bit from the Mirror Universe stuff that happens with Spock in the original series. Because it was kind of what the stuff we talked about before, Spock, Mirror Spock, getting those ideals from the Federation anyways, and the Terran Empire eventually collapses kind of on accident from the stuff they learned. So, but if you think about it, though, that all that does is that's the effect of Giorgio's fear. That's what Giorgio was worried about, that if people found yeah. out about the Federation the Terran Empire would be in jeopardy, and that's exactly what happens. Then again, you both that's true. brought up the point that the Mirror Universe, the timelines in these shows are all jacked up. Um, and if you go back to well, the, they, the Next Generation they episode... They did retcon it. Yeah, I mean, that Next Gen episode parallels with Worf jumping through 93 different dimensions or whatever. Apparently it's there's... Episode. Yeah, it's, it, it, there, there's a million different storylines, so who knows? And Who knows? There's a Mirror Universe where the Federation was conquered by the Vulcans, and... The humans are slaves of the Balkans. There we go. Well, especially, I mean, you know, the idea of the multiverse, just like, you know, DC Comics has and things like that, is that anytime there's uh, a branch in possible outcomes, there's a universe that has every outcome, right? There's a universe for every outcome. So, you know, the, I think the idea is that our universe and, quote, the mirror universe are tied together very closely. And, you know, maybe it's because of this mycelian network um, maybe they were tied together because of the way the Defiant jumped over. Um, any, any number of reasons, but these seem to be the two universes that are that are touching each other. 
Well, yeah, we know that the branching point is that Zephram Cockrum being a dick. It's like that's <laughs> yeah. that's where it start. That's where it all started. It's like the mycelium network is the nervous system of the universe, basically. Yeah, I mean, maybe. Yeah, kind of looks like it if you look at the trees and you look at all the stuff. I mean, that would. It's kind of a neat thing to do. Throw something a little unusual in there, but it's still Star Trek. It's still discovery. It's still meeting oh, new life. There's 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 a parallel. So if the the mycelium network is the nervous system and like brain of the universe, then the universe has two different uh, personalities imprinted on it, like Ash Tyler's brain. Ooh, Ooh. he's a mirror dun, within dun, himself. Dun. He's he's a mirror within a mirror. It's going to turn out like, like next the the season finale. It's going to turn out that. Ash Tyler was originally a Ferengi, turned into a human, turned into a Klingon. I bet Lorca is folk. <laughs> Shut up. Okay, we're saying this stuff in jest. Derek, if that turns out that you're correct, that Lorca is folk, I will, I will get you a $50 gift card to Amazon. There we go. It's... <laughs> just You can just give me a burger. I'll just buy I'll you a burger. a burger. There we go. <laughs> Well, guys, we talked a lot about this episode. We actually talked more than the length of the episode, but people <laughs> listening, a lot of stuff happens in this episode, even though it's only 37 minutes. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah, this was a dense one. It was very dense. There was four layer, five, four or five layers, because you got stamens in the network with mere stamens, and, you know, Lorca being Lorca, and Burnham with Giorgio, and Vogue Tyler, Tyler Vogue, Klingon Laurel, Death Howl. Well, and we have, I mean, we didn't even talk about the fact that Tyler, like, scratched himself up because he broke out of his restraints with his Klingon strength, and, and like, Laurel had to set him free because he was clearly tortured in his own brain, and it's like this very dramatic thing where Saru just drops this bloodied Ash Tyler in Laurel's lap, and just say, like, this is what you did. Good job, dumbass. And it's like, that is such, like, a shocking way to just like this guy was on my crew and now I'm just going to throw him in a cell with a Klingon prisoner and it's like let's just see how this goes it's like a Captain Sisko move right like drama bomb blam and then we also have um, Stamens uh, breaking out of the agonizer and like stabbing his captive in the neck or whatever happened there which is Amy Lorca or yeah sorry Lorca okay I was Um, like what seat when did that sorry (laughs) no yeah no we have we have Mirror slash Prime slash Mirror Lorca busting out of the Agonizer because he had taken what was only shown at the very beginning of the episode and not talked about again, the uh, pain pain inhibitors. And uh, that was his, his secret plan to, to bust out and start kicking some ass. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. It worked. But at least we know if the Mirror Universe ever invades the Prime Universe, it's just flashlights to take them down. <laughs> They all got a light sensitivity, so you're not wrong. (laughs) All right, guys, want to? Should we close up? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Uh, Derek. If uh, people want to find you and talk to you in per or in person, well, we're going to be at Planet Comic Con. If you (laughs) want to talk to us in person, come see our panel. Um, But if people want to catch you online, how can they do so, Derek? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter or Facebook at the Star Trek Dude, though I am more active on Twitter. And to Greg's point, you can meet all three of us at Planet Comic Con in Kansas City. We are going to be hosting a panel wrapping up season one of Star Trek Discovery on Saturday. So you can come see our panel there. And hey, maybe you can go meet Sonequa Martin-Green, who uh, is going to be at the convention as well. She, of course, plays Michael Burnham. And I'll be adding her name to my book. If anyone knows Sonequa Martin-Green, ask her to come by our panel and be our guest of honor. (laughs) I think that ended up just being a panel of us asking her questions for 50 minutes, uh, which I'm totally cool with. Yeah, no shit. (laughs) Totally cool. Totally cool with that. Uh, But... uh, yeah, so that's that's that stuff. Um, Jeremy. Uh, I am on Twitter at Zen Munkin, and you can hear me every week on the Saturday Morning Tooncast on Saturday mornings here on the Heroes Podcast Network. And you can find me on Yahoo and Twitter at the underscore Bittersteel. Uh, but it was a great episode, guys. It was fun talking Discovery with you. Uh, people out there, if you find us on iTunes, leave us a review. Give us some commentary. Give us some feedback, good, bad, or in the middle. Tell us, leave leave a review with your crazy theory for the end of this season. Ooh, I like it. There we go. Who will Laurel kill? Who will Ash 
fall in love with? Who will Saru be eaten by? Well, that's just sad. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Red Shirts and Runabouts. Uh, live long and prosper. Peace out. Red Shirts and Runabouts is part of the Heroes Podcast Network. The show is hosted by myself, Gregory Bosco, along with Jeremy Munkin and Derek Mayer. The theme song is by Flying Killer Robots. You can find us as well as other Heroes Podcast Network shows at heroespodcast.com, as well as on iTunes, Blog Talk Radio, Google Play, and anywhere you can use an RSS feed. Follow us on social media at Heroes Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitch. And you can also email us at contact at heroespodcast.com. Engage. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.